Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. We'll read um, these verses together, so let's read God's good word together. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And um, as we're talking about courage in this sermon series, um, you know, it really made me think of the things that Dr. King did and the way that he continued to persevere um, despite the challenges that he faced, despite the resistance, despite the threats, and even the violence that he faced. And uh, really, it just, I mean, epitomizes for me what courage looks like, continuing to show up even though um, it's costing you, and choosing the thing that is most important more than your own comfort, and in his case, even your own safety. And, you know, as we think about Dr. King, I think the thing that he's most known for is his speeches, particularly the I Have a Dream speech. Um, yet there's so much that went into that, um, be, into the movement beyond that. Um, the, the sit-ins, nonviolence, um, the training that they had to do to be able not to respond violently whenever people attack them. It's really phenomenal. And one of the things that, that particularly stands out to me is, is the things that he said on the last night of his life, what, what turned out almost to be prophetic. Um, whenever he was in Memphis the night before he was shot, this, this is what he said in what was known as his mountaintop speech. He said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The very next day, he was shot and killed. And yet the night before his death, he said he would love to live a long life, but that wasn't what was most important. And so he chose to continue his work. He acted with courage. And because of that, his legacy lives on. We continue to be inspired by the things that he said and did. And so that's what we're talking about today, that kind of courage, how we can persevere in the face of resistance and the, and the conviction that helps us to get there. So we're in week two of our sermon series, Courage, How to Live a Brave Life. I'm Brandon Blackston, the executive pastor here. And so it's great to be with you. It's great to be with everyone who's worshiping with us online this morning. Um, we've got a few more online than usual, just with a holiday weekend and everything that's going on in the, in the world and with the, um, with the it's not new anymore. Anyway, with the coronavirus, and uh, it's, you know, it's, these are times that call for courage, and so I don't know about you. I know I need that. I'm guessing you need that too, and a lot of us are facing challenges that call for that, and so Pastor Mark started us out last week by teaching us that courage is not the absence of fear. It's the right ordering of fear. Um, it doesn't mean having all your fears going away and just being able to act without any regard for anything that might happen. It's, it's knowing that you are afraid, but being more afraid of doing the wrong thing than what will happen to you 
if you do the right thing. It's having your fears in the right order. And so that's where we start. And, and really what helps us to be able to know what is the right thing to do is clarity. And so he taught us that when we, when we become clear on what God is asking us to do, courage rises. We need that clarity. Otherwise, it's, it's hard to have courage when you're not sure what you need the courage for. And so we need that clarity. And we saw this in Jesus' own life whenever he got clarity. After he was baptized, he went out into the wilderness and spent 40 days fasting and in prayer and was tempted while he was there. And he emerged crystal clear on what his mission was. And so he went um, to Nazareth and preached at the synagogue there. And this is what he said. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was crystal clear on what God was calling him to do. And, and so he knew what to do. He was able to have courage to be able to act. And as he concluded, um, he said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. And the people were like, not really feeling that. They're like, wait a second, who do you think you are to say this scripture has been fulfilled? Why do you think you are the fulfillment of that? And they even tried to throw him off a cliff afterward. Because that's what happens whenever we get clear. Whenever we get clear about our calling, resistance will emerge. Now, I hope none of you has someone try to throw you off a cliff. But no matter where you are, you're going to face resistance whenever you get clear about what God's calling you to do. Whenever you, the reason that it's courage is because there's a cost that's associated with it. And so what we're going to talk about this week is what do we do whenever we're facing that resistance? Because what gets us through that is conviction. Conviction assures us that the price we pay is worth it. And that enables us to act. Before we start, though, I think it's helpful uh, to, to talk about what conviction is not. How, how can we not get this wrong? And first, conviction is not the same as having loud or forceful opinions, right? I mean, shouting does not mean that you have convictions. It might mean you're trying to convince other people that you have conviction. It might mean that you're trying to convince yourself that you have conviction. And, you know, there's a time for where we need to be forceful, but uh, being forceful in and of itself does not mean that we have conviction. It's also not the same as proclaiming unpopular sentiments for their own sake. Again, sometimes we have to tell the truth, and the truth may not be popular. Sometimes we need to say things that people will not like. Sometimes we need to act in ways that will get people mad at us. But just because it's unpopular does not mean that it's true. It goes one way, not the other. And so sometimes, yes, we will have to do things that are unpopular. But seeking out, uh, the, seeking out the ire of others is not the same thing as having conviction. And then it's also not treating people with disrespect and unkindness. Again, it's like, uh, you know, just because you, you think you know the truth, that doesn't mean you get to tell everyone else that, you know, treat them like they don't matter. It's not the same thing. And uh, again, we'll face resistance. We'll, we have to confront that head on. Um, but that doesn't mean that we use disrespect or unkindness. That's not the same. Because all of this, you know, whenever we talk about things like the fruit of the Spirit, whenever we talk about Christian virtue, whenever we talk about courage, the, the conviction that stains that sustains courage is grounded in all of those virtues. It's grounded in the whole thing. It's not separate over here. And sometimes you have to be courageous and you can do whatever you want. And then also there's these things like kindness. It's, it's all part and parcel of the same thing, the way that Jesus teaches us to live. And, and so virtue uh, begins with wisdom. As Pastor Mark taught us last week, uh, to know reality and make the right decision 
is wisdom. Because you can't act courageously if you don't know what the right thing to do is, right? I'm, I'm going to be courageous, and uh, I'm just going to kind of flail around until I figure out what exactly I need to do. Is that, is that courageous? And I think we would say that's foolhardy. It's not the same thing. We have to know what the right thing is. We have to have wisdom first, and then we can act. And so it starts with wisdom, and then comes justice. And so justice has to do with taking the knowledge of what is good, of, of knowing what's the right thing to do, and then actually bringing that into existence, of going from knowing that God wants all of his children to have enough food to eat to actually making that possible, to making it possible for all of God's children to eat. And, and so there's wisdom, and there's justice, and then comes courage. And courage protects and sustains the good that justice has established and so it's really important whenever we're trying to, to act courageously, whenever we're seeking courage in our lives, that that's always tied to justice. Because whenever it's not, things can go really badly. And, uh, and the church has known this for a long time. St. Ambrose in the 4th century said this, used the word fortitude instead of courage, but it meant the same thing. Fortitude without justice is a lever of evil. It's, it's a tool for evil to use. And so you can, you can imagine that. I mean, if you're in a situation where you're, you're acting, you know, in a way that we would say is brave, but it, you're not acting in a way that is just, then you're going to do evil, right? I mean, you, you can think about this. Uh, um, pe- forces that have oppressed others, they go into danger willingly, but they do so not with the purpose of, of establishing justice, but of tearing it down, of hurting people. And so if those things are separate, if we're, if we're courageous without being just, then that's really not courage. That doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus taught us about. And so those things have to be united for us to put conviction into action. And, and there needs to be some kind of action because I, I think you all know this, but courage can only exist through action, Right? There's no such thing as being brave because you have the right opinion. That, that doesn't work together. To be brave, to be courageous, you have to actually do something. It leads to action. Now, now sometimes that looks like not doing anything. I mean, whenever we look at the civil rights movement, um, whenever people taking part in sit-ins were attacked, their response was nonviolence. They responded by holding steady to what they were doing. But that's not the same as non-action. It's nonviolent action. And, and so it has to be instantiated. It has to actually lead to us doing something. Not just, it's not just a feeling. I mean, if all we do is feel brave, then who does that help? Just us. And really, it doesn't even help us that much. So it has to take action. And we see this in Jesus' life. Um, whenever he was in a synagogue, he, he was worshiping in the scripture that we just read. And there was a woman there who had been unable to stand up straight for 18 years and um, had, had just basically was bent over in pain, and, and there may have been, there may be multiple levels of meaning there, not just physically bent over, but ba- basically bent over with, with the suffering that she was going through, with, with the challenges that we, she would have had integrating into everyday life. And, and so, um, as we read, when Jesus was teaching in, the syna- in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. And so Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her, and wanted to heal her. And, uh, but he ran into a problem there because there was a tradition, according to the scriptures, work was not done on the Sabbath. And, and the interpretation at that time was that, that that included healing for things that were chronic. You know, she had been suffering for a long time, and so the interpretation of the commandment to, um, to keep the Sabbath holy was that that's the kind of thing that you healed the other six days of the week. 
But Jesus saw her, and he wanted her to go free. And so instead of choosing to follow the way that the scriptures were interpreted at that time, he chose the woman. He chose to heal her. And by choosing to heal her, he knew that he might face, he might alienate the leaders and possibly face rejection. Because that's what he had just faced, uh, what we just read about. He, he, you know, read the scriptures, interpreted them, and uh, was told, well, he wasn't told to go jump off a cliff, but he, but he was um, pushed as if they were going to throw him off a cliff. He knew that he might face rejection, and yet he remembered, he had conviction about what God had called him to do. He remembered those scriptures, what he was called to do, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so whenever he saw a woman who was oppressed by her condition, he chose to set her free. His conviction gave him the courage to choose the woman's healing over his own acceptance. And so that's what he did. He, um, he saw her, he called her over and said, woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her immediately, she stood, stood up straight and began praising God. And then everyone was happy and they're like, Jesus, you're so great. Let's go home. This has been a great day, right? Not quite. Okay. You knew that was coming, right? And so what happened? The leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. He immediately faced resistance for doing what was right. And he knew that. But his, his conviction enabled him to choose that anyway. And whenever we see his courage, whenever we see his conviction, we can use that in our own life as well. We know that we're going to face resistance. We can take courage from his courage. We can take conviction from his conviction and use that whenever we face that resistance as well. The conviction that comes from God's truth enables us to choose courage over our own comfort, over our own reputation, over what we really want to be spending our time doing. It enables us to do that. I mean, really, it enables us to do the things that God asks us to do. I mean, one of, the, one of the verses that summarizes this really nicely is Micah 6a. This is what it says. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And if we're going to do that, we need courage, the kind of courage that conviction makes possible. And so how do we find that? Well, Tom Berlin, who wrote the, study, the book Courage, some of you are doing a small group study on that book. It's a great book that um, inspired the sermon series. This is what he says. He names a few ways that, um, that you can find that. He says there are many ways to develop and discover a Christ-centered conviction. And that's an important qualifier, right? I'm really convicted about telling the world about how great my favorite college football team is. I'm sure they're great, but that's not what we're talking about. A Christ-centered conviction. He says, start by paying attention to the moment that God gets your attention through anger, longing, and urgency. So those are three ways that that he's experienced God getting his attention and three ways that he commends to us as well. And so the the first one is anger. Um, Whenever we feel anger about the injustice suffered by others, it may be a sign that God is calling us to act. And you know how that feels. Whenever you see someone who's being unjustly persecuted, Whenever you see a kid who's getting picked on, whenever you see that, how does that make you feel? 
anger, right? And we feel angry whenever we see injustice take place. And, And that can be a sign that God is calling us to act whenever we see children who are hungry um, in the same way that our, that our youth experienced that over the weekend in the 30-hour famine. Whenever we see that and then we see the abundance that, that is in other places, that, that can make us angry and that can be a sign that God is calling us to act. Now, we have to be careful with anger because righteous anger can pretty easily turn into self-righteous anger, right? I mean, I've been on the wrong side of that before. I don't know about you. And uh, I have spent too much time watching Star Wars not to know that giving in to your anger is not usually the best solution. Where does that lead? The dark side. Thank you, Mike. And so we have to be careful. Um, Acting on anger um, without the other virtues, as we talked about, can get us into trouble. But that can be a sign that God is calling us to act. Another way that we can experience that is through a sense of longing, a deep sense of longing for hope and healing that can give us the conviction to persevere seeking change. Maybe that's in our own lives. Maybe that's for other people who need it. But, but that sense of longing can be powerful, can, can help us to continue making the right choice, taking the next step. And I've learned a lot about this from my brother. Um, this is my brother, Brett. He's got a pretty cool loft in downtown Kansas City, and so I went to visit him. He, um, whenever we were teenagers, he's my younger brother who became my bigger brother. And so whenever I'm taking selfies, I try to get the right angle so that I still look taller. And so I succeed. he was kind of squatty. He was helping me out. Um, and he realizes how fragile my ego is. Um, but yeah, this is my brother, Brett, and he is doing great, but he's had a tough road to get there. Um, whenever he was in middle school and high school, you know, he always wanted to, to be popular, to have people like him. And, and so, you know, some of the ways that he found to do that started um, just with, with alcohol at parties and, and found, you know, whenever people were drinking together that, you know, people liked him, that he could make them laugh and they kind of flocked to him. And um, that over the years transformed um, from alcohol to drugs and then to harder drugs and uh, really got out of hand for him. And things started going badly. He ended up um, quitting his college baseball team and um, getting really breaking, um, burning a lot of bridges, suffering in his relationships, and got to a place that he didn't want to be. And uh, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. That, that longing for acceptance was still there, um, but, but it hurt so badly that he just needed to numb it. And that was the only thing that he could figure out to do. Finally, it got so bad that he couldn't do anything else, and he went to an inpatient rehabilitation program, um, a 12-step program. And as he was sitting around, he was talking to other people who had, who had gotten sober, who had been where he was, but had, had made the choices that he didn't feel like he could make and had turned their lives around. And he saw the things that they had. They had families. They had jobs. They, they were successful. They had friendships. And, and he felt this deep longing to have what they had. And because of that, he, he was able to make that choice, that, that conviction. He was able to hold on to that. And whenever he had to decide whether to use or not, he held on to that and was able to begin to get sober. It wasn't always an easy road. It wasn't always all um, just, you know, up and to the right. But, but eventually, he got there. And um, this summer, he'll have been sober for eight years. And uh, it's really amazing to see the way that God's been at work in his life. He said whenever he was sitting in that room talking to those people that he realized that was God's plan for him, that God was with him, wanting him to hear them, to be inspired, to take the next step in his life. And so he, um, he joined the army and, um, and got um, what became enlisted. He made it through boot camp, and then he decided he liked punishment, and so he went back to officer candidate school. And uh, he's a second lieutenant now in the National Guard and has a great job, um, a really cool loft uh, that uh, I get to visit him in. And uh, it's just been amazing to see the way that his life has turned around. 
and I'm so proud of him. He's one of the bravest people I know. But it's not something, he's not on autopilot now. You know, it's not like he, he figured that out and now it's just easy. I mean, every day he has to make the choice. He has to face the things that, that he would rather ignore, that he would rather numb and, and continue to deal with those and to continue to stay sober. He's been able to do that for seven and a half years now, but he still has to choose that. And so he continues going to meetings, not so much for, for himself, but now for others, because he recognizes that they were there for him. And so that conviction has led not only to transformation in his life, but has helped him now to be a part of the lives of others. He's someone who, whenever I look at him, he helps me to be brave, because I see all that he has overcome. And you know, I hope that's an inspiration to you, and particularly if, that's, if addiction is something that's going on in your life or in your family, that change is possible. It starts with that conviction and that longing and the hope that things can get better. Another way that, that we experience that is, is whenever an urgent need arises in front of us. Sometimes God is calling us for such a time as this. You know, it's just something that, that you don't really have any part of. It's not something you're particularly interested in, but you just see a need, and it's, it's just so glaringly obvious in front of you that you just feel this sense that you have to act. And sometimes it happens to us. We see something, and our reaction is going to be, you know, basically someone ought to do something. You got to be careful about saying that. Because sometimes that's a sign that what God is actually saying is you need to do something. And so we see this really powerfully in the story of Esther. She, she was um, a Jewish girl. In the, in the, they had been conquered by the Persian Empire. And um, she had been chosen to become the wife of the Persian emperor. Like not, that's not probably the path that she imagined for her life. But she, w- she was in his household. And, and while she was there, one of his advisors had been basically plotting against the Jewish people and was trying to convince him to kill them all. Now, he didn't know that his wife, that one of his wives was Jewish, and so she could have passed by for a little while at least, um, or she could have stood up at great cost to herself potentially. And so she was talking to her relative Mordecai, and this is what he said to her. He said, if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, perhaps you've come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Now, she didn't set out to be the protector of her people. She didn't decide, I'm going to save all of us, and it's going to be great. I'm going to find my way into the, you know, the, the emperor's household. But she was there, and this need came up, and God used her for such a time as this. She acted with courage. She stood up and went before her husband, um, which she was not allowed to do if she wasn't called for, and yet she stood up, and she secured her people's safety because of her conviction and because of the urgency that she experienced, seeing a need that was in front of her. And we can do this because we know that when we face our fears, we're never alone. That's one of the things that my brother said helps him stay sober, is he remembers that no matter what temptation he's facing, he doesn't face that by himself, that God is with him. And that's the promise that each of us has, no matter how scary the situation, no matter how significant our fear is, we don't have to face that alone. God is with us. We have God's presence with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the example of Christ who shows us how he did it before us, choosing our own sake, not only in situations like the synagogue and healing the woman despite the rejection he faced, but even offering his own life, giving everything he had for us. And so whenever we face those situations, whenever we face those choices, we never have to do it alone. And, and this weekend in particular, but really you know, throughout, throughout the year, 
We remember the convictions of civil rights leaders, how their conviction enabled them to persevere through threats and violence. And I think this is one of the really amazing things about the civil rights movement that I didn't learn about until I was older, but just the way that that they prepared that uh, you didn't just show up for a sit-in and and hope for the best, but you went to training, you practiced responding whenever people were violent to you. And so um, James Lawson was a civil rights leader who led those workshops, who trained people to be able to resist nonviolently in those situations. And uh, C.T. Vivian, another leader, talked about what it was like to go through there and what they had to experience. They had to prepare for themselves for, um, as he says, how to in fact begin to take the blows, cigarettes put out on you, the fact that you're being spit on, and still, still respond with some sense of dignity, with a loving concept of what you were about, to be hit and to be knocked down, and to understand that in terms of struggle and in terms of reaching conscience, in terms of gaining the greater goals for which are sought. They had to remember that what they were about was not their own protection. It was about something much bigger, the dignity and justice of all people. And because they held on to that conviction, they were able to persevere and change the landscape of our country. There's a story that James Lawson tells. He, um, he was a pastor um, in Memphis. He's a United Methodist and, um, and also, uh, as I said, a trainer of people in the, social just, in the civil rights movement. Um, but one of the things that he did was he worked with the Little Rock Nine, the nine high school students who were the first to attend an integrated high school. And uh, he would go out there about once a week and would visit with them, talk to them about what were the things they were encountering because they knew they were under a microscope. And the way that they responded could affect civil rights across the rest of the country. And so he, he, one day he, when he was meeting with them, he asked them, what's the worst thing that you experience? What's the worst thing that happens to you whenever you're at school? And they, talk, they said that students would do something to them they called bombing, not literal bombs, but, but they would take like a, a rock or a marble and they would wrap it in paper. So, you know, it just looked like a wad of paper, but then they would throw it to him throw it at them as hard as they could. And so you get hit with a rock or, or with a marble. You can imagine how badly that would hurt. But students would do that to them. And so, um, and so he, he, he kind of worked with them on some of the ways that they could respond to that. And uh, at the next meeting, he came back and, and asked them, you know, how things were going, how they were able to respond. And, uh, and he tells the story of one of the girls named Melba and how she responded whenever someone tried to do that to her. So take a listen. Good morning, Melba. From the one who just a day earlier had done his best to hurt her, because of her courage, now is greeting her with kindness. And I love the way he says it. She, she was trembling, but she thought to herself, what can I do? That's what courage does. And she went and she picked up the weapon that had been intended to harm her. And I don't know how to do this. She's braver than I am. But she walked up to the person who did it and somehow found it in her to smile and put it on his desk. And because of that, the classroom was different. And even his life was different. And because she was brave, he was, be able, he was able to be brave too. Now, he didn't have to face the things that she had to face, but he still, in order to go from being an oppressor to being kind to her, he had to go against the grain. And instead of harming her, he had to make a choice. And he was able to do that because of her courage, because that's what courage does. The courage that comes from Christ-centered conviction encourages the people around us. It enables other people to be brave as well, because she was brave. He was able to do that as well, because people like my brother are brave. I'm able to be brave too, 
And that's what happens. Whenever we choose courage, whenever we listen to our convictions and choose that over our fears, it changes the world around us. So here are a few action steps I want to invite you to try these this week. And whenever you find yourself in a situation where you know courage is called for, whenever you know what you need to do, but you're having trouble doing it, whenever you're having trouble getting past the fear, ask yourself, what am I choosing instead of courage? What is the choice that I'm making? As as Pastor Mark told us last week, courage is is not the absence of fears, but it's having fear in the right order. And so if, if I'm choosing my fear, what am I putting ahead of doing what's right? What am I more afraid of? And that can give you clarity about what it actually is. Not just, I'm really scared of this, but, oh, I'm, I'm worried about my reputation. Or, oh, I'm worried that, that I'll, you know, I'll lose what I have. Whatever that is, ask, what is it? And then once you recognize that, choose to do the next courageous thing one day at a time, as the 12-step traditions remind us. You're not going to go probably from, from um, where you are today to where Martin Luther King was uh, at the end of his life, but you can take a step, and I can take a step. And as Christ fills us, as Christ guides our convictions and helps us to know what God is calling us to do, we can change the environment around us. And we f- may find ourselves trembling if we can ask God, what can I do? Help me to be brave. Will you pray with me? God, we are grateful for your son's example that he chooses to help the vulnerable, even at cost to himself, and chose us even sacrificing his own life for our sake. And so we pray that you will help us to be brave, help us to live with courage, help us to live in the way that you call us to do, to know what is right and to do it. We thank you for Jesus, for all that he taught us, for his example that gives us strength, and that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.